Uh, the teaching text is going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. So if you have a phone that you're not watching me and listening to me on right now, or if you have a paper Bible in front of you, would you go ahead and turn to Matthew 5, uh, verses 27 through 30? And just like we do every week, text, and they're gonna, we're going to walk through it together for a couple of minutes. And I just want to encourage you, uh, in reverence for the reading of Scripture and in, in uh, uh, paying attention to Scripture, uh, now's not the best time in the world to be like checking other social media platforms. Don't check your email. Don't check texts. Uh, listen with reverence uh, to the, the, the reading of the words of Jesus and as we consider this together. And in that way, let's show reverence in our hearts for it. This will be Matthew five twenty-seven through 30. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray. Jesus, as we read your word today, would you just fill us with your spirit? Would you give us just the faith enough to believe that you might empower us to do the things that you've commanded us to do? Help us to hear and to be attentive and to obey, not making excuses or copping out because of the situation we're in, uh, but like, like newborn children, as Paul said, craving pure spiritual milk, craving to be obedient. Help us, Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are going to talk about some somewhat adult themes today. So, you're welcome to send them to the pillows in the bathtub and have them read books or something like that. Uh, teenagers, I think this is a, a great message for, but we're going to dive in. Uh, before today, we were 26 verses deep uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And while we've alluded to the revolutionary nature of the Sermon on the Mount and the way that it like, really challenges some of our fundamental beliefs uh, and behaviors, it's really been somewhat parenthetical. Uh, to this point, we've been, we've been reading through the Beatitudes and Jesus' commentary on the law and the prophets, and I think many of us could probably give ourselves decent marks on how we've been doing in light of the teaching so far. And we may think, you know, compared to the average person, yeah, I, I shine somewhat brightly. I'm a fairly salty person in the good kingdom of God kind of way. You know, we could read the Sermon on the Mount to this point and say, you know what, I'm, I'm aware of my own poverty of spirit. I feel some level of hunger and thirst for righteousness. I earnestly desire to join Jesus in the way of peace. And the sermon has probably, uh, to this point, the Sermon on the Mount, been fairly encouraging and affirming. It's been an invitation to realign and refocus and recalibrate, certainly. But on the whole, it hasn't been to like in your face, like calling you out on areas where you're unfaithful until we come to the last passage and to this passage. You've heard that it was said, said Jesus, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is following this formulation that it began in the teaching last week. You've heard that it was said, and then presenting an alternate perspective or an expanded perspective. Jesus is stepping into the people of Israel, preaching on the mountain as, as the new Moses, the new and perfect teacher of Israel. 
And he's inviting his people toward a greater telos than Moses was able to give, a greater end, which is complete maturity. To practice a kind of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Last week he dug at the heart of murder, which is anger. And today he, he digs at the heart of adultery, which is lust. He said, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, now expanding, bringing the law of Moses to its conclusion, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. More difficult than loving your enemies or turning your cheek or going the second mile, for many people, and I think I can probably safely say for most men, this is the most difficult command of Jesus. The purity called for by Jesus, which is not only not acting on our lust, but not lusting in the first place, feels, to put it negatively, impossible, or to put it positively, utterly heroic. Who can do this? It had better be true, as Dale Bruner said, that these words of Jesus are alive with enabling power or otherwise and futility. But let's understand first what Jesus is actually saying in this passage of Scripture. Uh, I'm an NIV guy, New International Version guy. Um, it, it says in NIV, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully. Now, first of all, you should note that just because it says looks at a woman does not mean that people who look at men lustfully are off the hook. It's not condoned by its absence. What's condemned here is a lustful looking. But even this requires uh, further clarification. A better translation of the verse would, would be something like this. Anyone who looks at a person in order to lust after them, or anyone who looks at a person with the express goal or purpose of lusting. And the difference between looking with lust and looking in order to lust may seem subtle, but it's actually fairly significant. To look at an attractive person can be a drive given in creation. But to keep on looking or staring, or maybe it's best translated leering, to leer is a drive given in the fall from creation. In lustful looking, a person transitions from being a person to being an object. It no longer matters if they have a first or a last name. It doesn't matter that they are a son or a daughter. They become a commodity with desirable features, which you can compare to other commodities, other objects. And if it does anything at all, a Christian theology and biblical theology honors and affirms the inherent dignity and worth and personhood of every individual as an image bearer. And we should do the same in the way that we view and treat other people. I don't know if you saw it, but there was an article in the Tulsa World this week. Uh, you know, lots of businesses are trying to creatively figure out how to make it uh, amid the co coronavirus stuff. And there was an article about a strip club owner who was seeking permission from the Tulsa City Council to do drive-through, like, strip shows. So they would set up a drive-in, pick the person that he, wanted, that he or she wanted to be entertained by. That person would meet them in the tent, and there with their windows rolled up, they could be entertained for a fee. I thought, gosh, how dehumanizing. 
for a person to be reduced to an item on like an exotic dancing fast food menu where they are like they are like seriously objectified made to be an object that you could choose from and then entertained like a, a service what was most heartbreaking to me of all was that the owner said that it, that 90% of the the people who danced for him were single mothers now it may be easy to condone the owner or even more the patrons but many of us engage in this kind of behavior every single day in the shows and the media and the movies that we consume and the the images that we can see literally everywhere you can find explicit images on literally every social media platform it takes no work at all to see explicit images or objectified images of people and one of the difficulties is living as a christian in a sex obsessed lust positive culture is that in our condemnation of lust or porn or explicit sexuality we can unintentionally uh, condemn or shame ourselves for having a sex drive at all on the one hand we, we would do wrong we would err for saying that all sex or sexuality is okay and on the other hand we would also err in saying that all sex and sexuality is is bad is wrong and I think that there are many Christians out there, particularly young men who grew up in the church, who carry perpetual low-grade shame because they feel almost constant attraction to people of the opposite sex. You'd be kind of like an, a recovering alcoholic working in a bar trying hard not to think about alcohol. It's really, really hard to do and perhaps impossible. There's this guy named Mark Yarhouse, Y-A-R-H-O-U-S-E. Mark Yarhouse, who wrote a book about same-sex attracted Christians choosing celibacy as, as part of their discipleship. And the book is called A Costly Obedience. And straight men can perhaps come to the closest to empathizing with the costly obedience of same-sex attracted Christians who choose celibacy by naming their own difficulty in taming lust. If we got off our high horse and we were honest about how difficult it is for each of us in our struggle against our particular sins, we could find empathy toward those who sin differently than us, who have proclivities that are different than our own. Now remember in the teaching of Jesus that what's being condemned here is not the first look, noticing a beautiful or an attractive individual, but it's the second look, it's the leering look. Not just noticing, but making lustful consumption a destination, something that we're actively trying to do. Now, there's plenty of room for legalism. There are plenty of ways in which church people and pastors like me have made this teaching too difficult to bear. Uh, Martin Luther said this. He said, we should not make the bowstring too taut here, like tight as if anyone who is tempted in his lust and desire for another woman would be damned for it. If an evil thought is involuntary, comes out of nowhere on its own, it is not by itself a mortal sin. Another scholar expanded the teaching of Luther in this way. He said it's impossible to keep the devil from shooting evil thoughts and lusts into your heart. But see to it that you do not let such arrows stick there and take root but tear them out and throw them away. Do what one of the ancient fathers counseled long ago when he said, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can start nesting in my hair and biting my nose off. 
Thank you, church fathers. So I want to share in the next couple of minutes a handful of, of strategies for disarming the power and the possibility of lust when you notice an attractive person. So I'm going to share uh, four strategies with a brief aside after the third one. Four strategies for disarming the power and the possibility of lust. The first, the first one is probably a bit unconventional, not one that, that I don't know, maybe you've thought of. Uh, but the first uh, strategy for disarming the power of lust is to thank God for beauty. To thank God for beauty. You're walking down the street, if that ever happens again, or maybe like you're walking down your own street, maybe you're in the office, maybe you're somewhere, and you see a beautiful person. If you grew up in evangelical church culture, you've probably heard the phrase, of bounce your eyes, which is a good phrase to use. But, but often, like our first instinct on attraction is shame. But what if we went a different direction upon seeing a beautiful person that when you see the beauty in another person, you immediately thank God for it, and then you move on. So you see a, a person who's attractive, and rather than like immediately feeling guilty about yourself, just say, man, God, thank you. You're watching a movie, you happen upon something that excites you visually. You thank God for it. Move on. Dustin Kane McKelvey put together this prayer book that I cite all the time. It's called Every Moment Holy. Really great. I recommend it to you. And in the book, he has unconventional liturgies. And one of the liturgies he has is upon seeing a beautiful person. And this is how it goes. This is the prayer. He said, Lord, I praise you for the divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now, chart so that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or desire, but would instead be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. When you see rather than go just the second, third, fourth leering look and obsessing in a self-gratifying kind of way or rushing to self-shame for having been attracted in the first place, one strategy is to name the attraction or to name the beauty, to thank God for creating well, and then to move on. And when we thank God and we acknowledge the beauty of another person, it humanizes them. It reminds us they are a person that God made. They're a person for whom Jesus died. And by thanking God, putting ourselves in conversation with him, it also humanizes us. It reminds us who we are as an image bearer, as a, as a, as a son or a daughter of God. We thank God for the beauty, and then we move on. A second strategy we could take for managing our relationship uh, with lust or with lustful desires, attractions, is the second one is to take decisive action against lustful looking, to take decisive action against lustful looking. I think there was a time in American Christianity where our, our culture was so puritanical and so prude, um, so it seems to be again for that we became in reality or in both uh, just judgmental and legalistic and shaming. And people became really aware of our own brokenness and hypocrisy in this way, though we were slow uh, to admit it. And think, think by, I've even seen this change in my 
theological reaction to like the standoffishness of the church, uh, Christians have desired to be irrelevant, to consume the same kind of media that everyone consumes. It's like we can have our cake and eat it, eat it too. We can follow Jesus and we can also listen to decent music, which I believe firmly. But you can follow Jesus and, and the thinking was going, you can consume the same kind of media that everybody consumes. And I think that there's been a downside with every counter-reaction. The pendulum has swung uh, too far. And, and the counter-reaction has done a lot of harm and, and, and hindered the invitation of Jesus in many cases toward sexual purity. And while, listen, I, I love you, church. I don't mean to rub this in anybody's face, but you could take as an example shows like Game of Thrones. And I would say I think there are probably safely tons of people in our church who have watched Game of Thrones or shows like it. But take a show like Game of Thrones. Uh, the creators and the producers admit that they're exploiting, like, they're like literally profiting off the worst parts of the male instincts. They're li- they are making tons of money over uh, the sexual instincts of mostly men. And one of the show directors interviewed and recalls being a, a studio d- executive pulling him aside and saying, look, I represent the pervert side of the audience, okay? And everybody in the serious, everybody else is in the serious drama side, but I represent the perv side of the audience. And I'm saying that I want full frontal nudity in this scene. There was an awareness that the more explicit nudity there was, the higher the ratings were to go. The more pauses people were going to make, the more people were going to consume the product, and they were going to create, make money. And one of the actors who in the, the show was naked on camera quite a bit talked about the pressure she felt from executives and directors and writers to appear nude on the camera. And she also talked about the shame that she felt, weeping in her dressing room and weeping in the, back, the bathroom and feeling as if she needed to be protected from her co-stars. There was some, a real sense of exploitation that was happening, and many people, including Christians, were we're privy to it. We're supporting it in the, we, in the way we voted with our viewership. Let me ask you this. Is it wise, helpful, and fruitful for a follower of Jesus to consume these kinds of images and storylines? If we say the thing that like, we want the most in life, I, I ask the question many times, do you want to be well? Is it in the service of your desire for wellness to consume shows and, and music and movies and media and, and social media platforms like that, that floods your mind and your imagination with these kind of images? Is that behavior, that consumption, getting you toward the end that you want to achieve in life? You could ask, does the storyline add that much value to one's life that it's worth the struggle against lust? And there are tons of people who will say, perhaps truthfully, but perhaps with a little bit of self-deception, look, I watch it for the storyline, or like the story's just so good, I don't pay attention to that kind of stuff. And I'll be really honest, I know myself as a man well enough, and I know guys well enough, that I honestly don't buy the logic. I honestly don't buy that a man can watch a show like that and not have his mind and imagination polluted. I, I, just, I just don't think it's true. You can't watch that kind of stuff, male or female, that kind of explicit vulgarity and sexuality and be unaffected by it. So I think we should ask, does watching shows like Game of Thrones 
or ones where like real people are exploited for the entertainment of others, like ones where like people are competing on television to find their spouse. This, consuming this kind of media humanize, honor, and dignify other people? Does voting with our consumption, our viewership, like support a way of life that is aligned with the way of Jesus? Does it call out the best in us or in others, or does it make us like the roaring masses in the arena crying out at the carnal like, like show that's being displayed in front of us? Does it support a Sermon on the Mount ethic? I think we could honestly say, if we're answering truthfully, no, it doesn't. Absolutely not. So what does it do? He says to take decisive action against lust. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. And Jesus is speaking hyperbolically. Please do not cut off any body parts. Okay, stop. Right there. Right there. I see you. Stop it. Don't cut off any body parts. And Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He's advising us to take a drastic action against unnecessary forms of temptation. And I would say that there are probably many of us who can't handle being on Instagram. Like, there are, there are tons of us who truthfully, and like, I would put myself in there, like, I don't think very many of us at all can be trusted with unfiltered internet access. There are tons of us who just plain shouldn't watch television at all. One scholar said, Jesus does not advise cautious, gradual action. He counsels surgery and immediately. He does not advise band-aids. He commands amputations. For those of you who are married, those of us who are married, I think Proverbs chapter 5 provides some really good teaching uh, on this front. Uh, this is Proverbs 5, 15 through 18. Uh, the author says, drink water from your own cistern, like your own well, running waters from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the street, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. And then the author cues us in that he's using a metaphor in verse 18. He says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. And in the proverb, the author is giving us this metaphor for sexual satisfaction. Sexual satisfaction is compared to like drinking water. And he says that if you're constantly sipping from other sources, not drinking from your own cistern, you're less likely to be thirsty when you go home. Let the reader and the listener understand. So what does the author of Proverbs advise? It says stop sipping elsewhere uh, and be satisfied at home. Consuming sexual images and storylines will pollute your mind. It will often cause you to put unrealistic expectations on your spouse, on the real person who's actually with you. So stop sipping. Stop going to cisterns that are not your own and taking just a little swig, drink from your own cistern and cultivate gratitude for the fountain that God has given you. Now, the first thing what was the first encouragement? Who knows? The third one is to enlist a support team, to enlist a support team, to thank God for beauty and then to move on, to take decisive action. The third is to enlist a spiritual support team. 
Uh, those of us who struggled with habitual sins know that our sins thrive in secrecy. Someone who finally comes clean, like their story begins with, and no one else knew about it, or one person knew about it, or people are shocked when they find out, I didn't know he was capable of that, or she was capable of that. Our sin thrives in secrecy. That's where it works uh, the best. And everyone, but especially people who struggle with consuming sexual images habitually or engaging in extramarital sexuality should have some kind of forum where you habitually confess sin. And I don't mean occasionally confess sin. Like, I remember the one time I went down to the altar and I told God the four bad things that I did. I'm talking about on a regular systematic basis, telling people who are, are at your same level of maturity and ahead of you in your walk with Christ, here's the, the literal stuff I've done. Telling them the truth. I think, it, I think it's totally appropriate for everyone to have some kind of weekly forum of one, two, a three, ideally other people, where you're in a conversation where you confess sin and you pray for each other. It's James 5.16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You confess. It didn't even say to God, though that's certainly in Scripture. Confess to each other. Pray for each other so that you can be healed. First John tells us if we confess our sins to God, He's faithful and just not only to forgive us, but to purify us. If you have a guilty conscience, you're inclined to like stop listening to this because it makes you uncomfortable. If you have a guilty conscience, you can not only be forgiven by God, but purified by God. And as you confess your sins to people who are like following Jesus too, you can be healed by God. These are promises for us. You can be free from the things that are plaguing you, whether it's sexual sin or something else. You can be made right. Enlist a spiritual support team. Uh, many of us know when our greatest temptations are going to be. You're going to go on a work trip and you're going to have the hotel by yourself. You have the house to yourself. Again, secrecy and solitude here. Anticipate those expected times of temptation. Make a plan and follow up in community. So why on earth would you not say, call your, your buddies or your girlfriends and say, hey, look, I'm in the hotel room alone tonight. I'm going to unplug the television and I'm going to call you when I go to bed. Wouldn't it be amazing if you came home from a work trip with a clean conscience? Wouldn't it be amazing if when your family arrives at home, you don't have to de delete your browser history and pretend like you weren't watching anything at all? Wouldn't it feel so good to not have a secret in that department? And it seems like the first time we're coming clean, it's like a mountain that we have to climb, but God will help you to come into the light and to enlist helpers to come alongside you to confess to him and to confess to other people. You can be made free of all of this. So thank God for beauty. Take decisive action against lustful behaviors. Enlist a spiritual support team. And before I share the fourth, which I think applies a brief aside and speak to women on this topic. And I think what I've shared applies uh, fairly universally to men, but we also know that increase, in increasing measures, uh, this is a struggle for women too. One person estimated that 30% of those who are viewing pornography are women. It's increasing percentages. What I appreciate about how Jesus handles this topic on the whole is that he puts primary responsibility uh, in the, the lust conversation on men. 
men lusting after women. I think that that is, is probably the primary area of responsibility. Men need to do something about their own habits and what they do with their eyes. Women in these conversations have often unhelpfully been shamed for their beauty or have been told that it's totally their fault for making men stumble. And in this sense, by focusing on men, Jesus' teaching is arguably pretty feminist, pretty pro-women, putting the responsibility, much of it, where it lies in the hearts and the eyes of men. But while Jesus exhorts men not to leer or to stare, I think it's consistent with the teachings of Jesus, and I also think that it's the way of Christian charity to encourage women to be mindful of presenting themselves in ways that do not deliberately, and that's the key word here, that do not deliberately invite leering or staring. While I think the primary responsibility in this conversation is on men, I think there's an opportunity for secondary reflection for women about the degrees to which they are deliberately inviting, leering, or staring. Now look, I, am, I was somewhat terrified to bring up this topic because this is like the powder keg of powder keg conversations. A man talking about modesty. Every, every time a white man puts a conversation about modesty on the internet from a Christian perspective, the internet breaks. It literally implodes when that happens. So I understand that I'm walking on delicate territory. And I can tell you in fairness that men can find a way to be attracted to a sack full of potatoes or a woman wearing like a garbage bag. So look, I get it. Like it, it doesn't take very much for a man to sense attraction. But what I'm trying is, is to address, to speak to the motivation in a woman's heart or in any person's heart. It's natural to want to be beautiful, to be desirable, to be desired. And we're all stewards of our bodies and the way that we present ourselves in the world. I think we can make a great biblical case for fashion uh, from the Bible. But it may be helpful for every one of us, and I would say in this conversation, stereotypically, for women to ask themselves, what is my motivation in the way that I present myself publicly? How can I show love to my brothers in Christ in the way that I dress? And this one, I want to I want to speak with real sensitivity. A brother and a friend in Christ, and asking this: Do I have any spiritual or emotional needs that I'm trying to address with how others look at me? That how God, that God wants to help me with? Do I have any emotional or spiritual needs that I'm trying to address with the the leers of others? but it's a, a need that God really wants to help me with. Ooh, we're getting into painful territory, sensitive territory. But let's not rush into the defense. In the presence of Christ and the presence of the church, let's just invite the Spirit to search us, men and women, to, to uh, reveal truth from error. This is what the author of Hebrews says, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It goes on to say in verse 413, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. God knows the truth about you at the deepest parts of you. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So not rushing to hide our guilt, not rushing to defend ourselves, but each of us in humility and gentleness inviting the Spirit of God to tell us the truth about ourselves.
in, in developing strategies against lustful behaviors. We thank God for beauty and then we move on. We take decisive action against lustful habits and, and behaviors. We enlist a spiritual support team. And then the fourth and the final point is to submit yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit. To submit yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit. There was this old Scottish preacher who said, there's only one thing you can do with the old sinful man, the, the flesh that lives on the inside, and that's to starve him. And in response, somebody said, that would do no good with mine. He carries with him a good supply of emergency rations. When Jesus told the rich young ruler to give everything to the poor and then to go and to follow him, people suggested that Jesus' teaching was impossible. And likewise, when Jesus looks this crowd of like red-blooded Israelites in the face and tells them not to lust, it would have been very natural for all of them to think this is impossible. Jesus' response to the objection about wealth said, with man, it is impossible. Anyone who's, who's tried to tame their own perverted affections, their own lust outside of blessed places, knows it's impossible. It feels so difficult we can't master it. But Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God everything is possible. On your own, you are doomed to failure in this department, in every department, like every area where you have a proclivity that goes beyond God's design. On your own, you are doomed for failure, but there is the possibility and the promise of freedom for those who will submit themselves to the work of the Holy Spirit, the empowering and the enabling work of the Holy Spirit in your life. There's this worship leader in Tulsa in the late 90s who, one of his See in me what I cannot be. The humility in owning there are things I can't do and be on my own. I can't tame my affections. I can't be grateful for what I'm not grateful for. I can't love the things that I don't love. Like my desires get so out of control and the, the prayer just says, be in me what I cannot be. Do in me what I cannot do. It's, it's an invitation for the Spirit of God to do real work of renovation in us. The desire for all of us in, in striving to be a community shaped by the gospel is that we would push one another on toward wholeness in Christ, wellness in Christ, maturity in Christ. And this is what we're after all year long. Paul says, He is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. You can be mature in Christ. You've been kind of like the slacker not too highly but you can be mature in Christ Paul's vision was for everyone he says to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me how can you say yes whether it's in this topic and in this struggle or another how can you say yes to strenuously contend to work with the energy God has put within you in taking a decisive stand against sin, against impurity, and for holiness and health. We do this that by God's grace we could be people of purity in an age of perversion, that we could be people of holiness in an age of haughtiness, and that we could be people of, who humanize in an age of humiliation. This is the invitation of the people of God who in this department where so many people are shamed, 
and exploited and bear guilt and whose lives are ravaged by sexual affections run off course. We can be people who shine brightly and stay salty, offering the world an alternate track, a way to be well through Jesus and through the Spirit who empowers us to live differently. Wherever you are, in your living room, in your car, in your office, I invite you just to, to pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, we just invite the work of your Spirit uh, to examine us, to search us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious ways. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord Jesus, I remember how the Beatitudes starts with those who are poor in spirit. As you reveal our sins, as you put us in touch with our own poverty, may we be beneficiaries of your grace. That while this teaching of yours, Jesus, damns, it also reminds us that there's a blessing on the poor in spirit. Those who are spiritually bankrupt, there's a blessing on us just because you love us and you made us. Right now, wherever you are, in the quiet of your own heart or in a whisper, I just invite you to confess the stuff you've done to God. Uh, the ways in which this is a real struggle for you. Be specific. Name them to the Lord. Ask Him to forgive you in full awareness that what you've done is wrong and not best for you. Name it in, sp- in specifics to Him. Ask Him to forgive you. And I, I would ask you just where, wherever you are, like in the coming weeks, to be like, practice a kind of holy impulsivity and find someone near you who, who's more mature than you in Christ and say, brother, sister, I need to confess something to you that I've already confessed to God. And then maybe you hear from a brother, friend, you've confessed your sins to God and to me, and so I just tell you in the name of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. And that forgiveness and that purification is available to you. And God, for all of us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you just enable us to be people of purity, people of holiness, people who humanize. We need your help, Lord Jesus, and we just invite you to come. Well, many of us are tempted with increased screen time alone at home. Would you just do a meaningful work of intervention and set captives free in the name of Jesus? Amen. This is the time when we normally share the bread and the wine, the reminder of all that God has done that we could never do for ourselves. How Jesus allowed himself to be broken so that we could be made whole. He allowed himself to be estranged so that we could be brought into a place of belonging. He emptied himself so that we could be filled so that we could be dignified. And I want to say to each and every one of you who are watching at home and who are watching later, the body and the blood of Jesus is for you. He loves you. He knows everything you've done. And he's especially fond of you.